This show is sponsored by The Pragmatic Studio. The Pragmatic Studio has been teaching iOS development since November of 2008. They have a four-day hands-on course where you learn all the tools, APIs, and techniques to build iOS apps with confidence and understand how all the pieces fit together. They have two courses coming up. The first one's in July from the 22nd to the 25th in Reston, Virginia, and you can get early registration up through June 21st. You can also sign up for their August course, and that's August 26th through the 29th in Denver, Colorado, and you can get early registration through July 26th. If you want a private course for teams of five developers or more, you can also sign up on their website at pragmaticstudio.com. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 12 of iFreaks. This week on our panel, we have Pete Hodgson. Buongiorno from rainy San Francisco this morning. Ben Sherman. I give you a very jet-lagged hello from Houston. Rod Schmidt. Hello from Salt Lake City. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Sam Sofas. All right. Hello. You want to introduce yourself real quick? Um, Sure. So I live in Kentucky right now. Um, I work at a company called Seesaw. And uh, yeah, work on some, a bunch of little projects. Rune being my main side project right now. So That's awesome. Rune, R-O-O-N dot I-O, right? You got it. Yeah, I am primed. I've got the best username. I'm, all I need to do now is blog a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Rune is like a blogging platform. What makes it kind of compelling in comparison to some of the other things that are out there? So it's a project I did with Drew Wilson. And if, if you're not familiar with his work, he's just a spectacular designer. And we just wanted to make something really simple that we wanted to use and hopefully other people wanted to use too. So we just made something like really simple that's like really beautiful. And there's also a native iPhone app. The iPad app is like the universal is like almost done. I'm submitting it hopefully this week. Um, and we have a Mac app in the pipeline. So it's just like we wanted to make a really great writing experience that's simple and pretty and hopefully people like it. So Awesome. Yeah, I, I got on the uh, Octopress train and I really liked some of the aspects of that, like Git publishing and writing and markdown and that sort of thing. But I found that after I updated to Octopress, I blogged a whole lot less. And I don't know what, why that is. <laughs> that's funny. I found the exact opposite. Really? Yeah, but I was on Blogger before, which is pretty awful. So maybe that's why. Yeah, the local. I haven't used anything else. The the local Cub Scout uh, counts or district, they're on Blogger, and I keep telling them, "Look, I will pay for your hosting <laughs> if you'll move off of it." Oh, anyway. So um, we we brought you on the show today to talk about open source. And and I think open source is a little bit different from open source, say, in JavaScript or Ruby, where, you know, the source code is effectively what you get and it just gets interpreted out in the open or even on the server, as opposed to iOS, where it effectively gets compiled down into an app and then pushed up to the device. D- does that change the equation for you at all? I, I think it's it makes it a better experience, honestly. Because, like, in, in Ruby, for I mean, I spend a lot of my day job writing Ruby mostly now. And it's great because, like, there's tests and, like, we can integrate it and the test passed and it's fine, whatever. But, like, if there's not tests for it, then, like, who knows you're putting this code in your app that, like, who knows what it's going to do. But in, like, you know, Objective-C land, everything compiles. So if it, if at least it compiles, you know it, like, it's sort of going to work, hopefully, you know, versus, like, there's if there's a syntax error or something in Ruby, then, like, you could find that at a very un- 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 unconvenient time and have some bad issues, you know, so. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess the flip side of that, though, is that people in the Ruby community actually write tests. <laughs> right? I mean, like, I'm being a little bit... I'm being a little bit... Zing. Exactly. exactly <laughs> a little bit. Like, if I, if I get a pull request for a, for a Ruby project and it doesn't have tests, I can say, can you please add some tests? And normally they will add some tests. If I, if I got a pull request for an iOS project, I'm not... I've, well, for an Objective-C project, I've never actually tried asking people to add tests, but I'm not sure whether I'd get the same... You know, whether, whether people would actually feel comfortable doing that. I just did that yesterday, actually. And uh, he replied today and wrote a test, so it was, it was awesome. pretty cool for, for an Objective-C project. Wait um, I think the biggest thing is, like, no one really does tests at all. But if there's already, like, some tests in the projects and, like, an example to, like, follow, then it's, like, pretty easy to, like, write a test for what you just made, you know? Mm-hmm. But no one just tests in general, so it's, it's kind of tough. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's my fault for not writing tests in the first place and not uh, <laughs> telling... Not you know refusing pull requests that don't have tests or asking people to write the tests. 
I mean, one of the things with like bringing on third-party code in your application, like when I used to do this in the Microsoft world, of very rarely would components that you purchased or received somewhere would contain source code. They would just be compiled binaries and you link them in. And, you know, the problem is like there's usually bugs or there's, you know, things that you need to work around and you don't have the source to really even know. So they better well have good documentation. But then when moving to Ruby, you know, everything is sort of implicitly open source because it's not compiled. So it seemed like it was just a much better ecosystem for open source. Uh, Now, you know, doing this same thing in the Objective-C world, people have the ability to ship static libraries to you without source, and some of them do, like, um, I don't know, say like Flurry's analytics uh, package or TestFlight's um, component that you can embed in your app, and you really have no control over, no insight into what it's doing in your app. So, like, bringing it into an app that you intend to ship to customers is kind of a, uh, I don't want to say risky, but you really have to think about it and trust the the people behind that that they're not going to do something really stupid. Are there very many systems that actually do that though, or do most of them actually provide you with the source so you can modify it if you need to? I mean, some of those big companies, I it's almost as if they feel like that's their secret sauce. Uh, but honestly, what is, test, what is test flight? Maybe, but what is like? Uh, think about uh, Flurry, for instance. Uh, we've my company wrote a, an analytics platform for a client. It was not that much code, right? You just hook into some exception handlers and you provide a means of logging and you submit some uh, network requests to send it, send the data. It's it's really like not that complicated. So the real secret sauce, the values in the server that they have and the data that they're storing for you, right? And so same with TestFlight. Like, yeah, sure, we could all write a client that does what TestFlight does on the mobile app. So I don't see any reason why it couldn't be open source. So um, a good specific- example of that. Good example oh. of that is the, the crash reporting stuff, right? That almost all the, the iOS crash reporters are based on that one open source library. PL, name I PL crash reporter. Yeah, and that's that's you know open source, and they're all based on it, but they all still manage to sustain a business model. Yeah, so there was a an issue with the test flight SDK. I want to say it was like a, almost a year ago, where I forget what it was, but somehow they were issuing too many network requests concurrently, and it would like kill the networking stack for your particular app. Uh, And we noticed this in our app where all of our network requests would fail. And they would fail before leaving the device. Like you inspect the response code, it'd be empty. The the response code would be zero, uh, which isn't valid. And over uh, trial and error, we eventually realized, uh, isolated the problem to the test flight SDK. And I think it was, uh, there was like an AF networking like issue that wasn't really related to AF networking, but the test flight SDK guys kind of subverted the issue as a discussion place for resolving that because apparently a lot of people were having having that problem. So I think it just kind of underscores the the notion that you know if they had been open source, um, I don't think model at all, and it probably would have allowed somebody in the community to come along and say, hey, this is a problem and you guys should fix it, or I can submit a patch. Well, the other thing is, is with like Flurry and TestFlight, I mean, you're you're not just paying for the little library that you stick in your your uh, application. You're actually paying for the infrastructure they provide to you know gather and analyze your analytics or to provide people an opportunity to try out your application, and, and that's really what you're paying for. So there's no there's no risk if their APIs are secure in exposing the driver on the other end in open source. I was going to say I open sourced um, one of my products, Cheddar, the iOS app, because like it was a service you'd pay for, right? So like the service is obviously closed source, but like the iOS app's open source because like who cares? It's a free app for like this thing. It's a free SDK from TestFlight, you know. Like it's useless without their service. So like you know, if there's a bug or something, like let someone figure it out. There's really no reason to like keep that close because you're right. It's not like secret or anything. By the way, I have to tell you, huge thanks for open sourcing Cheddar for iOS. I think it's a great like kind of model real world project. Yeah, plus That's one. Awesome. Oh, thanks so much. I mean, so many people don't are like afraid to do that. Like, oh no, you know, somebody could take your source and build the same application you built. And my, my thinking is the the type of care and brand you built around that would mean any others based on the same technology wouldn't be as successful. Right. And obviously they don't have the server either. So I had one guy, he uh Took the, is the exact same design, icon, everything. Didn't have the fonts though, because he didn't license them, and those aren't open source. Mm-hmm. And submitted it without the server component, like with everything. 
And I was like, hey, Apple, like, it's not cool. He's using my icon. And they like took it from, took it down from the store. So that was the only nice. like problem, I guess, but it wasn't like that big of a deal. The guy was nice about it too. Some ch- mm-hmm. Chinese guy was like, sorry, in broken English. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool. So was he charging for the app? Uh, I think it was free. I can't, it might have been a dollar. I can't remember. What a weird thing to do. Like, <laughs> I wonder why he did that. Yeah. Who knows? I think more. I I think more companies or more people or whatever should should do that. Even if they're charging, even if they don't have a server side component to their app and they're they're charging like two dollars, I think that there's a very there's only a very small number of people in the world that would actually uh, rather than paying two dollars for the you know they'd go and clone it and set up the project and build it and put it on their phone and all that stuff. Like it's just. No one's going to bother doing that. I don't. I don't know why people, more people don't open source iOS stuff. And they have to give I, Apple hundred dollars too. You know, if they're just like a normal person, like yeah, it's right. so much work. Yeah, yeah. For like a two dollar, like you know, press a button and it takes two dollars well, from your bank account or five dollars or whatever. I, I think you underestimate the lengths people will go to avoid paying for something. I I guess so, <laughs> but that those kind of people, I suspect. Like I, I, you know, it's kind of like the Android thing. Like people who are not willing to pay for something, they're not really going to be very good customers of yours anyway. So why bother? I guess that was, you know, always the uh, what's it called guy, the Instapaper guy, who always used to say that, right? Marco like, Arment. Yeah. 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 The thing that I think I worry the most about with open sourcing my iOS stuff is basically that not that they're going to take it and try and put it on their own device. Because heck, I mean, I'm out two two dollars, or if it's free, then I'm out nothing. But, you know, the scenario that Sam brought up where, you know, they compile it and stick it out on the iOS store and basically it's my app with, you know, a little bit of prettiness or, you know, added to it or taken out of it depending on what the situation is. I mean, if you're yeah. super concerned, you could just like put a more restrictive license up, you know, like a, whatever. I mean, mine's, uh, I think it's BSD or MIT. I forget which one I picked because it's like, I don't care. Do whatever you want. Just like the BSD one basically says you can't use my name. And I was just like, please don't be a jerk in the readme. Like, here's this stuff for free. Like, please don't be a jerk. I only had one problem, so I guess it's not you know, that big of a deal. I don't know. Actually, I want to find out if there is a license where you can not open source something, but, well, I guess, I don't know if this counts as open source, but put your code out there and say, anyone's welcome to look at it. You guys are welcome to send me pull requests. You're just not allowed to make any money off of it. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you're welcome to install it yourself. You're welcome to improve it and install an improved version yourself and put it up on whatever, but you're just not allowed to sell it. Because then you, then you could legally stop people from doing that bit, but you'd still get the benefits of the community contributions and all that stuff. Although probably people wouldn't want to contribute to that kind of project. I mean, people contributed to Cheddar just because they found a bug and wanted to fix it. I mean, like, granted, that's a very small group of people that are developers and have that capability. But I mean, that was kind of my audience, so it, it worked out. But yeah, surely there's a license that, you know, has those stipulations. Yeah. It's also, you know, an example project that uses uh, shared code between iOS and Mac. Can you talk for a minute about, like, how that experience was? So I really hate Mac development. Just first off, it's the worst. <laughs> but um, I think we did a whole episode on that. <laughs> we yeah, did. <laughs> yeah, Josh Abernathy's, like, kind of plea to Apple to make it better every i'll just randomly i him and be like how do you do this all day every day i just i just can't understand like uh it's mad anyway so i wanted to make a mac app and i was like well all the networking and core data is like totally like 100 the same i just have to redo the ui so i just made it well for the long time it was the same project and it was just two different targets and then when i wanted to open source Cheddar for ios the mac app wasn't like anywhere near complete so I split it out into a static library so I could open source it separately and still work on Mac privately until it was done. But I mean, for a long time, it was just, it was one, one project. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Is there anything like specific you want to know? <laughs> no, I just, uh, you know, I was following the development on Twitter and just thought it was, you know, I, I also have this kind of desire to build a Mac app at some point, but I don't know. Every time I do file a new Mac app, I'm kind of lost. <laughs> <laughs> so would you if you were going to do it if you were going to do a similar project again would you stick with that kind of shared kind of core stuff or would you I mean like was did you get a lot of benefits from that because that, that's why I'm interested in it because I'm, I'm interested in that whole idea of, of like reuse, reusing the core code but then having a different face on it for different platforms yeah so we're going to do a rune mac app and this is it was kind of my plan because it worked really well for cheddars just because like all of the 
like core data and networking stuff is like totally the same because like most of the business logic and stuff is in in the models well right now for that particular app it's in the controllers but that's because i'm doing it quickly anyway like you can reuse a lot of stuff and just make like you know okay on ios it's a fetch results controller on mac it's an array controller and like you have your list of things you have to rewrite your cells whatever but you know it, it works really well to like to share all that stuff and there's really rarely any like I don't think there's hardly any conditionals with the exception of like including different frameworks. And that's pretty, that's pretty the way awesome. I kind of, yeah, it works really well. The way I got around it or a couple things was I had categories in each particular app. So like I'd have a category for my models that had like fetch results controller specific things or, or whatnot. I forget what specifically is in those, but I definitely had categories in each app to like add things instead of adding conditionals in the shared library. Which maybe is a bad idea because it makes it less reusable for other folks, but realistically, I'm the only person that's using ChatterKit and the thing I'm making for Rune. So I don't know. But I, I thought that was cleaner than doing um, doing like if defs all over the place. So yeah, I think it's, it's a good uh, way to like just kind of enforce your own separation. Also, yeah, that's true. If you think about trying to separate all your stuff, I mean, even just like working on an app that's open source, like you write better code just because like people are gonna see it maybe, <laughs> and you're like. <laughs> Yeah. Like, I don't want to think I'm terrible. Like, I got to, you know, but that aside, even if you're just like, I'm going to like separate this part out and maybe open source, maybe not, whatever. It makes you make things much cleaner. You know, you can't like, I worked on apps before that like the models had stuff to like control some random scroll view and some random view controller. And I was like, oh gosh, this is so terrible. There's like a, you know, a scroll view outlet on a, on a core data object. This is ridiculous. So it prevents you from doing that like silly, yeah. terrible things. Yes, I've, some of my friends are asking me if I'm going to open source it in a screencast app that I've been working on for like almost a year now, and I've I I plan on rewriting it. And I'm kind of considering that approach, but I also kind of you know there's there's a security through obscurity with a service that I expect people to pay for, and um, you know my um, you know like for instance like in app purchases, it's not sufficient to just like set a did purchase flag to yes and NS user defaults, right? You actually have to do some verification of <laughs> purchases and uh, I don't know, like things you might be able to get away with in V1, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't want to ship that open source just because it's, it's, it's kind of a uh, way too easy to, for people to fake. So maybe I'm being a little naive and optimistic, but maybe if you did have a bug like that and you open sourced it, someone would actually send you a pull request to, you know, if someone found it, they'd send you a pull request to fix the bug rather than exploit it. But and you are an optimist, aren't you? I, I am. I live in San Francisco. Come on. <laughs> You'd be surprised. I think. Like, I was really worried, and was going to try to like draft a custom open source license to like, you know, you can use it, but you can't sell it unless it's like very different than mine. And then someone's like, "Well, how do you even define like, you know, a valuable change or like a enough like." deviation from my work and I was like you're right like if I'm an open source you just like forget it it's open source it's totally free do whatever you want with it and uh, no one was like you know terrible except for that one guy but he was nice about it when I asked him to take it down so I don't know yeah that did said people can definitely much, be jerks did you get What's many up? contributions that you could use like did you get a lot of pull requests that you ended up using for Cheddar yeah I mean like I would say at least 20 plus I'd have to look but there was like for a while I mean like when I was more actively working on it, I got a ton of contributions and bug fixes and, or even just like, you know, people reporting problems in GitHub issues with like very detailed things and like linking to code. Like, I think this might be the problem, but I'm not sure. And I was like, this is awesome. Like I can actually like really help you versus like it's crashing when I do this. And I'm like, I don't know. Sorry. You know, so <laughs> that alone was really nice just to have like some like very good support tickets already in GitHub for me. Cause that's what I was yeah, working from awesome. anyway. So did you have any like issues where someone was like, I think it should be doing this, and you're like, well, actually, I don't think it should do. You know, like, um, I guess that's the challenge of open source is, is walk, walking that line between being the benevolent dictator and, you know, like, uh, encouraging people to contribute stuff, but also keeping the vision of the, the project. Yeah, there was definitely a couple, like, no one actually, I, I can't think of many... I can't think of any case that someone sent a pull request that was like already implemented for something I didn't want. But um, there's definitely several issues or like, I guess there was a couple, whatever. But anyway, people would say a couple things like, well, thank you so much for your work, but like, I don't really think this fits in with the vision of Chatter right now. Like, I'll consider it in the future. 
I just have to be like tactful about it. And then like everyone's like, cool, I understand. Like, thanks for making it simple. You know, so I don't know. That's so, definitely tough to do. So I, I kind of want to tackle another angle on open source within iOS um, where we're kind of talking about open sourcing our apps. But what about um, open source libraries? Or first off, you know, I, I think we all know about CocoaPods. Are there other good places of getting open source libraries for your iOS apps that, you know, allow you to add certain functionality to it? And uh, what are kind of the pros and cons of using those? So I guess CocoaPods is the is the de facto standard, right? I mean, it's there was other systems out there, but CocoaPods kind of got market share enough that people started actually registering them. If nothing else, you can use CocoaPods to search for a library because they have the website, right? Mm-hmm. Or you can do that on the uh, command line app too. Just pod search and oh yeah, a search term, yeah. Well, that's assuming you're using CocoaPods. Well, sure, but uh, I mean, the alternative, right, is is to download the code and either compile something as a static library and link it in, in which case you have to manage the header search paths and other linker flags and you know perhaps other build settings that you need to put in there. Or what people ended up doing is just dragging and dropping source files into their own project. And uh, man, I really, really hate that approach. Yeah. Uh, h- however, it has the least friction for people. Like f- if it matches your OS version and it's using Arc and and your project's using Arc or whatever, if certain things line up, that is like the easiest way for people to pull in code. It just has the the downside of being, well, it's bundled into your application. You might have to deal with Arc issues if uh, they differ from your settings. Um, uh, there's some other weird things that you might run into, like uh, if it depends on frameworks that you haven't linked. I don't know, a number of problems. And then really the update problem is yeah, I right. think, the biggest. Well, before yeah, CocoaPods, it was easy enough to just like add a submodule and then add the files directly in Xcode for like simpler, you know, libraries. Because like you don't have to deal with like all of this silly dependency and static library stuff. That worked really well. I mean, especially pre-Arc, that worked like amazingly well because there was really no things people could do that were like super crazy. But so yeah, but the up. When would you ever update it though? I mean, if you if you updated it, would you would you like link the files directly? Or would you copy yeah, you them into your project? The Git, you just update the Git submodule. Yeah. So what about new files that get added? Well, yeah. yeah you just, then you'd update it if there's an error, like, okay, see if there's new files and just add them. But I mean, yeah. that was like a pretty rare thing, you know. I, so my, 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 my thinking is that, like, doing that for once or twice is not a big deal. But if you had, like, 10, like, dependencies, it just... And, and I'm kind of a fan of, like, uh, keeping... Like, having some really awesome, like, uh, small dependencies that um, add value to the platform and you can bring those along to every project, you know? And so I don't think it's unreasonable to have 10 or 15 dependencies on various open source projects. And if, if each one of those requires some sort of header search paths wonkiness or any kind of other build setting, it just seems like it's, uh, it, it loses its value quickly the more you have. It definitely adds a lot of friction, right? Like you're, you're discouraged from using open source tools a little bit if you have to do that stuff and you're discouraged from updating them because it's, you know, oh, there might be a file added and I'll have to mess around with Xcode. Yeah, I mean, and we're not even talking about versioning. There, there's basically no versioning in that scenario, right? You no, can you can still like do tags it tags. Yeah, you just, I've, I've done that before using tags. In fact, I do that, I think, today with, with some stuff that I do that doesn't use CocoaPods. The thing is, I think that a lot of the people that that have kind of vocal, uh, vocally um, don't like CocoaPods are like pro iOS developers. They're the kind of people that you know they're kind of known in the iOS community, so they obviously know what they're talking about. But like in some, you could say that the target audience for CocoaPods is actually kind of Joe developer who's doesn't really understand what what a header search path is and just wants to, you know, something to do his make his day job easier or maybe make his afternoon or his evening job easier so I think CocoaPods does help with that but the problem is it's such a big lumbering thing that tries to do a bunch of different things it um no one can improve Coco like one of the things that CocoaPods does because you'd have to change the whole thing in one big go it doesn't really follow like the Unix like do one thing well kind of philosophy same way as Bundler doesn't like if you wanted to change the way Bundler works you'd you basically can't because you have to change the whole of Bundler. Mm-hmm. I have to say, though, that I do like the idea of if I have to, I don't know, 
make a JSON API call and they have some pod in there that makes that a lot easier, you know, abstracts away a lot of the APIs for that and things so that I don't really have to think too hard about it to make it happen. I'm all for that, but at the same time, you know, if if it has these pain points, then I have to weigh the time and and effort it's going to take me to make the pod work against the time it would take me just to write my own. I mean, I think there's no question of whether or not it's valuable to bring in like robust third-party libraries that add value to project because, I mean, there's lots of stuff out there that can help you do your job faster. And if it's trustworthy, then, you know, I don't see any reason why you shouldn't um, take advantage of that. However, on every new project you start, you're like, oh, I want to use this thing and this thing and this thing. How quickly can you get those things integrated into your project? And if it involves a, a handful of manual steps, which, I mean... Like, go take a look at how to install Kiwi. It's it's just a little ridiculous, you know. The, the same thing with, you know, the, the instructions on how to install Frank. It's, it's just like the world that we live in. You know, if we can make that as easy as add something to yeah. a file and run a command, uh, I think that's a win. Yeah, I, to- I mean, I, I, to- I totally agree. And I think it's kind of, it's, it, was, it used to always crack me up that whenever you go to, like, the GitHub page for an open source iOS app, it was like the readme was 700 line or 700 kind of pages of <laughs> screenshots of like click here and there's a big arrow pointing to where you. It's like, yeah. I saw a presentation on Expert. Kiwi at one of our uh, local iOS meetups and half the presentation was setting it up. So, dude, I did. Setting I, it up. I did a presentation on Kiwi at CocoConf, and that was pretty much 20% or 30% of the presentation. Was, <laughs> oh, wow. All right, now let's talk about header search. But the thing is, yeah. I mean, but that then was if a they're conscious be, choice if, because you if, need people to get going, right? Like that's the that, that was my yeah. target audience. So, I mean, it sucks, but that, that's the nature. If you're about to embark on a project that you know you're going to work on for like six months, right, then I'm okay with doing a little manual work up front to make your job easier down the line, right? But, I mean, if you create apps to try out concepts like on a daily or weekly basis or if you're constantly working on new projects man that stuff gets tedious real quick uh, yeah. I mean I, I get really frustrated with just how difficult it is to do like to get started on new things and once you have your sort of convention set up like your folder structure and Xcode and you know things linked up the way you like them uh, then you don't really have to worry about it but uh, I mean Perhaps I have unique concerns because I create like a brand new sample project for NS Screencast every week, and God, that gets really old. <laughs> I think you're definitely an outlier there. So, are there ways that we could make this easier? I mean, I mean, even just a Bash script or something that could do it, or is there a reason why that wouldn't work? Well, I know Google Pods has like an Xcode gem for working with the Xcode project and just doing arbitrary things to it. So, I mean, like that's a really nice foundation. I think if you wanted to start going nuts and making your own thing. Um, that's what that's what Frank does is because we can't use CocoaPods. As far as I know, we can't use CocoaPods because we need to mess around with things too much. So I just I think I use their gem or Luke Redpath has a similar like Xcode gem, and you just I just like programmatically mess around a little bit with Xcode and then uh, use Xcode build to do some things and it and it works. But it it's a bu- as a maintainer, it's a bunch more work than re- writing a spec. I think. Mm-hmm. Do you guys ever run into libraries? from CocoaPods or GitHub or anything that seem to not be reliable, that don't do what they say they do or uh, don't reliably do what they say they do? I think if you know what to look out for, I mean, personally, no, because I, I kind of like have a, a checklist of things before I even like consider using a library. So I think if you're like smart about what you pick, you don't really have that problem. Can I uh, just ask you what some of the things on that checklist are? Yeah. So like more than 20 stars on GitHub or like about that, you know, like, okay, at least someone is using this, you know, and if it doesn't have commits in the last like month or two, then I usually won't even consider it. Basically, I want to see that it's like actively working. And I mean, if the only activity in the, in the repository is just like a bunch of people complaining and issues and no response from the maintainer, that's a huge like red flag, you know? So, you know, I mainly just, is this like decently reliable or like, is this decently active? And then does it read me have how to use it? You know, so if the, if I don't know how to use it and it's not being maintained, then you know it's it's probably going to be a waste of time if I get it in there. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So yeah, in in the Ruby community, you have something like uh, Ruby Toolbox, which it can say, oh, you want to you know parse HTML? Here are like four gems to do it, and here and it will analyze 
those kind of uh, stats. This one is actively maintained. This one looks like it has a lot of unresolved issues. It would probably be interesting to have something like that for iOS community. Yeah, because um, be. looking at Cocoa Controls, there's just a ton of stuff out there. Uh, CocoaControls.com. I think we've picked it on the show before, but it's got lots of uh, visual components, but also just like you know, Cocoa Pods. You can search for Cocoa Pods directly in there. And when I was doing a screencast on like slide menus, kind of like the Facebook sort of left nav slider menu thing, uh, I took a look at about seven or eight different components and. One of the things is like in addition to this just general code quality and how how strong is the GitHub repository in terms of stars, forks, issues, and things like that, and the documentation. It's just like how does it feel? And you know, you you have to have some sort of like a video or like a sample project you can download because uh, I'm really picky about like the polish on these things. And one of the things that I found that almost none of them do is if you are pulling like when you, when you pull to the right with your finger, it should open the menu like tracking underneath your finger, right? Some of them just implement the pan gesture recognizer when it finishes and then does an animation to open it and it just feels janky, you know? And if they do uh, implement the one where, you know, it's tracking your finger and you do it really quickly and then let go, it should calculate the requisite velocity in order to complete the animation at the same velocity it was that your finger was moving, right? And that's not it's a little bit of math, but it's not that hard, right? But it's just the attention to detail that you have to make sure that these visual components adhere to your standards as well. Um, and I sort of broke my own rule, like uh, Sam, you called me out on it the other day, where I've, I've had this, like, um, this little component I wrote uh, that I've used in a few projects. Um, it just presents a, a picker view, like modally, but it doesn't have any screenshots on my GitHub page. So I'm taking screenshots to put them up there this week. Yeah, I think it'd be nice if, I mean, maybe someone should just like, this is the standard, everyone follow it, and everyone hopefully blindly follows, but like for a visual, like some sort of UI component for, for iOS, you have to have like at least one screenshot, and like if it's anything interactive, like, you know, please post a video, and and like a sample project that someone can download and play with, I think is like really important. Because like, like you said, it's hard to like sit down and like if you want to evaluate like what's the best you know, pull refresh or something. You have to download like all of these and like put them in a project and play with it and figure out how to integrate. It's like, you just want to know which one's the best, you know, like show me the stuff so I can make my decision and move on. So do you have any um, tips on like contributing to these projects? Hmm. I mean, I can say from the perspective of like the repository owner, not necessarily as the perspective of a contributor. No, that's what I mean. Like, uh, if if somebody were to like uh, make a contribution to one of your uh, projects, what are the things that you like appreciate, and what are the things you want people to? I don't know. Like, wh- one thing on uh, from my perspective is just like uh, ignore all of your current like uh, hangups on like where braces go and like where spaces in like in the method signature go. Um, like, follow the conventions of the project. Totally, uh, that's actually but- my number one thing. It's fine if you want to do something like really silly, like use five spaces or something, like whatever. But if you're working in this project, like please just match it so it's like it's all consistent, you know. Um, and I still use tabs for most things, just because Xcode does a better job with tabs and spaces and whatever. I prefer spaces, but Xcode sucks at them. But everyone will still contribute with spaces, and it's like really annoying to like, you know, hey, please just change the tabs. I know, I'm sorry, just please change the tabs, and I'll merge your thing, you know. That's always like just like people are like, well, I did all this stuff for you, and like you want me to like change white space? I was like, well, yes, sorry, you know, it's kind of like an awkward interchange. But I guess the other thing is like you know, if there's tests in the project and you're writing something that's like changing functionality, you're adding functionality, like please write a test for it if there's already tests. Obviously, a lot of things don't have tests, so you don't worry about it. And I think as Objective C developers, we don't really like think about tests, but. Um, yeah, to, I mean, to your point about like, oh, I did all this work and now you're going to reject it for this thing. Or like uh, earlier you said, oh, this doesn't really fit in with our vision. There's no reason why you can't like discuss this stuff with people ahead of time. Like open initiative and say, hey, I was thinking about doing this, but before I take my entire weekend doing it and making it perfect, maybe I should just run it by you first, you know? Totally. But on the other hand, like, wouldn't it be nice? And then it's easier to like, yeah, sure, like some pull request. And then they like, implement it all. It's like, well, actually, you know. So, I don't know. I mean, like, it's definitely more impressive to, like, here's a pull request, implement my idea, what do you think? Versus, I mean, but no, you're totally right, you know, if you're going to spend all this time on it. And I get a lot of contributions in SS Toolkit for, because there's a bunch of categories in there, because this project's super old. 
Um, I mean, it's I have categories when I wrote in my very first app in like 2008. And people like got all those categories. It's like, I just really don't like there was one the other day for like is iPad. And it's like, there's a macro for that. Like, I really just don't want this. And they're like, no, this would be really great. And it's like, no, like you can make your own library. It's okay. Like, we don't have to agree on this. It's really okay. Like, you can have your own library with your own categories. It's fine. Like, and that's always like really hard to just like, no, I really like, I'm sure I don't want this. And people like argue about it. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't really have any tips besides just like try to do what the author would want and just like be conscious of that. What's your view on like, um, like when you, uh, use a branch, um, and like squashing commits and that sort of thing. Uh, do you have opinions on those? I generally don't squash commits unless like the author requests. And personally, I don't care. Um, mainly because most people like, especially people newer to development in general, which I think is a lot of the iOS community, more so than like other communities like Ruby, for example, they're new to just development in general. So like asking them to rebase stuff is just like, I have no idea. Like I had a pull request just a couple, <laughs> like an hour ago. And I was like, I, I'm sorry, I can't rebase. Please close this one and I'll make a new pull request. I'm just going to copy and paste it. And I was like, no, it's fine. Like, I know this is hard and I don't really care that much. But I know, I mean, I contributed to like a couple like Rails core Ruby projects and they're like, you have to rebase this into one commit or we're not going to accept it. And I was like, fine, whatever. Um, I'll go Google how to rebase because I can never remember. So <laughs> I don't know. First, I don't care. And I think people that care are like just being silly. But I mean, I guess if it's like a giant project like Rails or something, like it, it makes sense because there's just so many commits. It's hard to like dig through anything. But I mean, I don't, I don't care. I don't see many Objective-C folks caring. I, I know the only person I think that does it is, is Matt Thompson that I've seen do it anyway. And he'll just merge it and then rebase it after the fact. So like, he just yeah. does it for you, which is nice. Yeah, I did that on uh, somebody issued a pull request on and changed like four or five unrelated things. But the pull request was related to one of those things. And I could tell that they didn't really know the the sort of intricacies of Git and why you should keep them separate. But I still appreciated the pull request. Um, and since the volume that I get is way lower than some of these more popular projects, I didn't mind so much just fixing it up and merging it in. Yeah, I think that's good. I mean, especially... I feel like a lot of these contributions, especially to like some of my libraries are someone's like first contribution to GitHub. Like I'll see comments like, thank you for merging this. This is like, I got a GitHub account just so I could contribute this. And I was like, well, yeah, thanks so much. You know, like, so I think like trying to be nice to people and not just like, you suck, you have to rebase this, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, I, yeah, yeah, I think it's that's important. It is really daunting. Like it's intimidating for people new to development to submit code that other people are going to see and judge. And I think, you know, those of us have sort of live on GitHub, uh, you know, should remember that when people are submitting changes. I mean, sometimes it's going to suck and you'll be like, well, thanks for the idea. I'm going to do it myself because I like the idea. Uh, but the implementation isn't that great, you know. What do you guys feel about taking someone's pull request in and then, like, cleaning it up afterwards? Because I always go back and forth about that. Like, I, I kind of almost feel rude to, like, take it in and then be like, okay, this is cool, but now I'm going to change all the stuff you did because I don't agree with it. That's your project. I think that's, at least you're incorporating their idea. Yeah, and yeah. I was going to add that uh, for me, it's not just that it's my project. My name's on it. Um, you know, their name's on the pull request, but my, my name's on the project. And so if somebody's going to pull it down, they're not thinking, oh, well, this piece was contributed by so-and-so and such-and-such. And so if if the code doesn't match style, I you know, I may or may not um, refactor it, but if the code could be done better, then I'll definitely refactor it because it has my name on it. I used to go down that route, and now I kind of just like don't merge anything if it's not something. If it's something I have to redo, I usually just like won't merge it because I don't have time to like do that anymore. Yeah, but I mean I, that would definitely you know I every pull request I'd merge and then have to go like clean up some little thing because I'm super like picky about coding convention and stuff. So it's like it needs to be perfect and. I don't know. I guess I just am carrying less these days. It if depends. you read through the uh, AF networking, some of the more popular issues that are like long running, there's lots of conversation and involved. Uh, Matt will often close it and reopen it given all the conversation. Uh, but he's always super good at saying, oh, thanks so much for your contribution. This is really awesome. You know, he uh, to me, it seems like he's very welcoming of changes, but he does uh, very often close a pull request and write it himself. Yeah, he's yeah. done that a number of my my things. We like, talked about it in person, and then 
he's like, yeah, that'd be great. I'll implement it and su- submit it. And he'll like close it and just redo it. And I was like, okay, well, whatever, you know, it works. <laughs> I'm happy it's there. I don't really care if it's my code or your code. Yeah. 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 The, the other thing that I was going to say is that, yeah, I mean, if it's a significant amount of refactoring I'm going to have to do on it, then I'll, I won't take it. But if it's something that's like, yeah, well, I'll have to pull this in and then make a couple of minor edits. Um, one thing that bugs me is like changes like with the trailing white space and and things like that like it i use vim for ruby and it shows me the spaces like the invisibles or whatever that's called and so i'm like religious about deleting all of that extraneous white space but you know in the ruby community if i if i were to pull open a project and start cleaning up a bunch of files that i run across uh that should certainly be in a separate pull request just as a white space cleanup sort of pull request. And I don't know, in Xcode, they don't show that to you. So when I open up uh, any kind of Objective-C file in Vim, I I don't know, my eyes hurt a little bit just because it, it it's so common for it to do that. Yep. All right, well, I think we're getting close to the end. Is there anything else that we need to talk about with open source in iOS? I just had one last question. Uh, it was just in, in regards to the open source stuff you guys are doing at Seesaw. Um, sure. It seems like... Uh, you know, you guys have quite a few projects here, like a phone number formatter, your little CSI activity indicator view, things like that. Um, you see that trend continuing? And like, what is the reason why you guys put this out there? Yeah. Um, so I, I just looked in our, our pod file for our the CSI app, and there's um, 17 pods. And a couple, I mean, several of those are um, our internal projects. And then we have a couple more that are just... Um, separated out that aren't their own repo yet, but we have like a couple little internal apps, and I mean we were, we like open source like personal. I mean like you know I like open source, and as leading engineering, like I want to do as much open source as possible. So yeah, I mean like little things like we're probably we have a couple things on the list like our the way we use our our camera and like the interaction and wrapping up AV Foundation and stuff is like on our list of things and like there's a there's a several things we do like all over the place. It's like this is silly. We should just like open source this because there's probably little problems and if someone else can like use it and get a benefit, yay, if they want to fix those one random little edge case because they ran into it too, like that's awesome too. But yeah, I mean I just think it's really nice. Like there's there's no reason not to. It's not our secret sauce. Like, you know, fo- like formatting phone numbers isn't really like our core business. So like who cares if, you know, you use our code. Hopefully you can enjoy it too. That's awesome. All right, well, let's go ahead and do the picks. Ben, why don't you start us off with picks? So my goal here is to take all of Pete's picks by the time I'm done. Pete, what I've are your picks? I've already picked them. <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, yes. <laughs> me first, me first. No, I'm kidding, Ben, go. All right. Whoever can uh, say him first. So uh, I have one related to open source, and that's uh, semver.org. Uh, it's semantic versioning, and it's just a pretty widely accepted practice for versioning your libraries, and I think you should adopt it. Uh, I think it makes a whole lot of things um, easier. Uh, so the idea is that you have major, minor, and patch, and when you introduce just kind of uh, bug fixes here and there, you know, those are patches, and when you introduce new features, those are minor versions, uh, and when you make uh, breaking changes, you rev the uh, major version number. And in doing so, you can uh, allow people to depend on specific versions of your library but also receive all of the bug fixes. So using something like uh, Bundler in Ruby or um, or CocoaPods, you can say, I want to um, I want to make sure I get 1.5.x, where x can increase as I update. Um, but I don't want to get anything later than that because some other pod depends on this version or whatever. Uh, so take a look at semver.org if versioning I- eludes you. Uh, two other things I had. Uh, for my trip to WWDC, I bought... Uh, one of those battery chargers. Um, the one I bought is an Anchor Astro 3E. It's a uh, 10,000 milliamp hour high capacity battery pack. It'll charge two devices, so it's got two USB ports on the bottom. And uh, man, that thing was awesome. It I could carry it in the pocket of my backpack and just plug my phone in while I was walking around San Francisco. Um, it uh, would charge my phone from nothing to full almost five times. Um, it and it self-charges in about 8 to 10 hours, so you just plug it in overnight. And uh, I had to charge it once while I was there, and it just uh, made it so that I didn't have to worry about battery the whole time I was in San Francisco. However, it's a little bit slippery, and it slipped out of my bag somewhere when I was traveling in Berkeley, and I lost it. 
<laughs> oh no! So I'm, so I'm probably going to buy it again. It was only forty bucks. Uh, it, it's totally worth it if you need to travel and you're going to use your phone a lot. Um, so I will add a link to that in the show notes. Uh, the next, my last pick is a card game that I ordered like six months ago on Amazon, uh, but it was back ordered. It's called uh, Cards Against Humanity, and it's kind of like apples to apples if you've ever played that. But it's the description is a free party game for horrible people. <laughs> and uh, so it gives you like a, you know, a card like uh, the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History has just opened an interactive exhibit on blank. And then the one of the cards will be like uh, living in a trash can or, you know, midget clowns or something. I mean, it's just kind of ridiculous uh, combinations and it's pretty fun. Their website so, used to have a place where you could like see some of the cards together and stuff. And- I, I think yeah, I mean you can print them out. It's free, but if you want the box set and the nice cards, uh, it's twenty five bucks. But they were back ordered for the longest time, so I just just uh, pre ordered it on Amazon. And when it was when it finally came out, uh, they shipped it to me. So yeah, I got and, picked on Ruby Rogues, and we spent like a half hour after the show <laughs> looking at all the combinations that it would bring up on the website. And and I actually have one of the Anchor uh, battery packs and. I was charging two phones on it like all day long <laughs> when we were on vacation one time. So they're awesome. Pete, what are your picks? Did he uh, steal your was picks? Gonna be, yeah, it was going to be all those ones that Ben did, so I got no picks. <laughs> 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 Just kidding. Um, my first pick is Travis CI for iOS. That was a lot of acronyms. Um, so Travis is this open source, well, not open source, it's this... Um, publicly available continuous integration setup that you can use to to do stuff like compile your application and run tests against your application. Um, it's super duper awesome when GitHub, because you can, uh, whenever you get a pull request for your open source library or whatever, then Travis will actually run a build against that pull request and tell you, hey, you know, it compiles, but the tests aren't passing or whatever. So, um, and they, they re- reasonably recently announced iOS support. So I've been setting up Travis for some of my iOS stuff and it, it works out great. It's a great like kind of first first screen for for pull requests. So um, I wrote a blog post about using Travis and Facebook's SC tool, which I think I XC tool, sorry, which I picked before. So um, yep, Travis is bueno. And uh, my next pick is reading application licenses. So if you are using um, if you have an app on your phone, like a Facebook app or whatever, and you and you want to know what um, open source libraries they're using, generally, if you kind of go and find the legal section, which is normally in like settings or about or something like that, they're kind of obliged, if especially if they're a big company and they actually follow the letter of the law, they're obliged to include all of the licenses for, or a lot of the licenses for the open source um, components they use. So if you want to know what tools um, an app is using, you can just kind of go spelunking through that. And it's really interesting if you pick like a really big app like Facebook, they're using a lot of open source stuff and you can kind of see all the different open source things that they're using. So that's my second pick and that's my uh, last pick. Awesome. Rod, what are your picks? Okay, uh, let's see. My first pick is going to be AppCoreKit.net or AppCoreKit. It's a iOS framework that I ran across this weekend um, that looks really interesting. It adds support for models and valid automatic validation and data bindings. It's got cascading style sheets for changing the appearance of your app and generic collection controllers and a lot of adds a whole bunch of stuff to uh, Coca. So it looks interesting. And then my second pick is I'm I'm a tennis fan and Wimbledon's going on right now, and um, ESPN just released their Watch ESPN app for the Apple TV. So I no longer have to stream my iPad to my TV, I can just use the Watch ESPN app. And it looks a lot better on the TV than it does on the iPad. And those are my picks. Awesome. Ben, what are your picks? <laughs> so I have one, <laughs> one, one more quick one. It's called uh, ObjectiveCHackathon.AppSpot.com. It's, it's this weekend, so the people listening to this recording, it will already have passed. But Sorry. the the spirit of it uh, is, is still fine, but the idea is that CoffeeScript just supplanted uh, Objective C is is in the top ten languages on GitHub, and there's a community push to uh, reverse that, uh, so to put Objective C back on the GitHub map. Uh, so the idea is that people are going to c- contribute to open sport open source, uh, you know, 
submit a pull request, uh, create a new open source library, or just push some Objective-C code to GitHub uh, this Saturday. Uh, so if you're hearing this after the fact, then just pick your own uh, private Objective-C hackathon day and, and do that as well. And hopefully we'll get Objective-C back on the map. I'm guessing at least part of that has to do with the fact that Rails adopted a while ago CoffeeScript as its default uh, JavaScript thing. So, Yeah. I think that's part of it. Anyway, so I've got a couple of picks. The first pick, I've, I've been looking into uh, some more how do I say it, more residual income types of things. Um, I like doing the consulting and I love writing code, but uh, it'd be nice to have a little bit of, uh, of you know, just residual recurring income coming in. And so um, I've picked up a couple of resources that I want to share. And the first one, it's called uh, Create Awesome Online Courses. And if you're a fan of Rise to the Top, it's done by David Seitman Garland, who hosts that show and does a whole bunch of other stuff on the web. And so far, it's been terrific. So uh, I'm, I'm definitely going to be going through that and, and doing some of the stuff that he recommends. And you can also keep an eye out for any, uh, some courses coming up in the near future. Um, also, another one is I found a book on Amazon, and it's basically writing a nonfiction book in 21 days. And it walks you through the process of, of outlining and writing a book. And it's been really good as well. And uh, the last thing that I want to pick is Amazon Prime. And uh, the reason I'm picking that related to these other two is that uh, writing an ebook in 21 days book was free to borrow for Amazon Prime uh, subscribers. So I just picked that up. It, it already saves me more than I pay for it in, in shipping and things. So I'm pretty happy to pay for it. But uh, that was just another perk that I was pretty happy with. So anyway, those are my picks. Sam, what are your picks? I have two. One is Kickoff app. It's a Mac and iOS app for project management with like small teams. So Drew and I use it to build Rune, and it's spectacular. It's like super beautiful on both Mac and iOS. It's kind of an interesting model because it's like a one-time paid app, and then you get like the service for free. Um, but it's super great. And um, second is Red Carpet. I don't know if this is okay, but I'm doing it. Uh, it's a Ruby <laughs> library. It's it's by GitHub for Markdown parsing. Um, and I use it in uh, Rune, and it's spectacular. I actually contributed some C code to add like two Markdown features, which was I was really proud of myself because I'm really terrible at C. But anyway, it's super awesome. So if you're doing Markdown related things, it's spectacular. So, all right, cool. You said it was red carpet because I think I think Red yes. Path was initially written by Why the Lucky Stiff, and I think it's based off of that. Ah, well, there was also it, blue, blue cloth and or, yeah, some it was other red ones. cloth. That's what it was. And red blue, cloth and then blue cloth, blue cloth and then red carpet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's totally. I mean, it's all written in C. Those were pure Ruby ones. So it's it's like Sundown is the uh, the internal like C library it uses. Um, there was kind of a controversy around the C Markdown parsing library. Do you remember that? Like, uh, no. I can't remember the name. It was called like Lib Upskirt, and it was. Oh kind yeah, of, it's uh, it's that one. Yeah, they and then I, Sundown. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the the guy got all kinds of kind of you know bad press uh for for that name. Yeah, now it's sundown. Kind of funny. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up the show. Thanks for coming, Sam. It was a good discussion. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah. All right. Well, High we'll, fives. We'll wrap the show up. We'll catch y'all next week. <laughs>